Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? The refugee situation deserves and requires a political answer. And this cannot be a German answer, a national answer, but it has to be a European answer. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And we're recording as EU leaders gather here for another summit. And once again, with no press on the premises due to the coronavirus. But we're not going to let that stop us. We'll do our own mini-summit right here, discussing some of the topics the leaders will be discussing, such as Russia and Turkey and the Eastern Mediterranean. And we may not have the current German Chancellor, but we do have a guy who's campaigning to be the next one. Norbert Rutgen. You just heard his voice at the start of the show. He's chairman of the German Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee and a candidate to take over the leadership of the ruling Christian Democrats. You'll hear Matt Karnichnik's interview with him later on. But first, let's bring in Matt in Berlin and Reem Montaz in Paris for our regular podcast panel. Reem, you're just back from a trip to the Baltics with Emmanuel Macron, where, of course, there is a at least a degree of scepticism about uh, Macron's uh, Russia policy in that part of the world. So just fill us in on um, what Macron was saying about Russia on that trip and about his policy of, of strategic dialogue with Moscow, which you know some in that region are, are not fans of. You know, since the poisoning of a Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, a lot of people have been wondering if Macron was going to maybe not completely do a U-turn on his strategic dialogue with Russia, but at least tone it down a bit and kind of change perhaps the terms of the conversation. That is not at all what is happening. Mm. So as you said, he was in Lithuania and in Latvia uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. And on every one of these stops, the Russia issue came up. And, you know, he was quite frank. He kind of doubled down and said... Uh, you know, I'm not naive. I know that things are difficult with with Russia and with Vladimir Putin. But actually, in essence, they don't have another choice. Uh, you know, from the French perspective, there's a bit of like sort of realpolitik going on saying, well, we can't rely on the US anymore for a lot of our protection. Um, we are not going to go to war with Russia. So what other option do we have? We have diplomacy. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's partly about how you conduct that diplomacy and, and, you know, how effective it is. And I do think it does seem to be a puzzle for the European Union in general and for kind of Western powers and individual countries is, you know, what works with Russia, right? Because we obviously have seen uh, sanctions imposed to a degree, uh, particularly over Ukraine. That doesn't seem to have changed uh, behaviour hugely. You know, you try the kind of more softly, softly approach. That doesn't seem to change behaviour. What's the kind of state of the debate in Germany, Matt, particularly is that's where 
uh, Navalny, you know, ended up. That's where he's had medical treatment. And there was, you know, initial talk in the aftermath of the poisoning that perhaps Germany would, would get tougher, that perhaps the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, you know, could be at risk. You know, what's the latest uh, state of play in Germany? Well, I hate to say I told you so. <laughs> no, you don't. I you love don't saying that. Tell. I, I really don't. <laughs> You're right. I don't. So uh, just for the record, I've been saying from the beginning that the Germans would fold like a house of cards on this issue with uh, Russia. And that's exactly what they've done. Uh, you know, the, the, the story has more or less receded. It's back today. We're recording on Thursday because Navalny has given a very interesting interview to Der Spiegel. But I think that you know, paradoxically, his recovery has made it easier for the Germans to revert to their usual position, which is what Reem just kind of laid out, which is this idea of dialogue. And, you know, that's that's where we are. And meanwhile, uh, Putin keeps doing whatever he wants. You know, I was speaking to a, a German military official recently who said, you know what, he could move into Lithuania the day after tomorrow by lunchtime and by the time it had happened, you know, we would still be kind of trying to get our gun out of the holster. I mean, you know, this is this is the reality. So you asked, what can you do about it? What works? Well, what works is to stand up to him, which the West hasn't been willing to do. And I, for obvious reasons, disagree with, with Reem on this point of, well, you, you know, this French idea that you can't rely on the United States. Well, you know, that's just bullshit because the United States has always been willing to step in here when it really mattered in the First World War, in the Second World War, during the Cold War. Well, but so, that's, a, that's we're know. talking, nobody's disputing that it did in history. The question is whether it would again. And even you, I think, have doubts about whether America would be willing to step up to do that. I have no doubts about that. <laughs> you might have doubts about Trump. Right. But uh, who, is the, who is the president of the United States of America last time I checked? Yeah, maybe for another couple of weeks. <laughs> well, let's but, see. You know. Is that another prediction? It is, it is. But let me jump in here and say that was not my opinion. That is how the French perceive it and the French policymakers perceive it. So if the French policymakers aren't completely sure about the American, you know, guarantee... Uh, but they've never been sure about with... the American guarantee. That's the entire history <laughs> of the French in NATO. I mean... You know, they've never been sure. Well, precisely, but we have to deal with that. We can't just kind of swat it away and say they're just a bunch of idiots. Well, I'm not just swatting it away, but it, I think it's just a reality check. I mean, you know, something else that's come out today is the news in the uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung saying that this uh, joint fighter project between France and Germany is basically on, on the brink of collapse. Uh, you know, and this was supposed to be, you know, another big symbol of European defense cooperation going forward. And they've decided to pursue this instead of buying the American F-35, which already exists. But these two things can be right at the same time, meaning America can be today perceived by the French policymakers as less reliable. And at the same time, the Franco-German or European defense track can also be stumbling and not reliable too. These two things can be real at the same time. Absolutely, but I, I think that they are. But the perception is not the question. The perception is: is it is it a valid perception? And you know, I'm calling bullshit on the perception, basically. I don't think it's even a perception that you know the U.S. has not been a kind of consistent or 
reliable partner to the Europeans in recent years under the Trump administration, right? And and whether that is then used by people who already have a certain predisposition towards the United States or, you know, prompts a genuine reassessment, I guess, is a separate question. But I just don't think that's true. If you talk to the people in the Baltics, that's not that's not their perception. It's not the perception in Poland. I mean, that might be the perception in old Europe. Right, there we go. It could be an old Europe, West Europe split. What we call the new Europe. Okay, but I think you you can see. I mean, I think Macron, correct me if I'm wrong, but Macron was the first president in, uh, French president in 10 years to visit Lithuania. No, he was the first French president in 20 years to to visit Lithuania and Latvia. In 20 years. Yeah, you're right, actually, to point that out. You're right that France actually hasn't paid enough attention uh, and hasn't taken seriously enough uh, sort of the Baltic and Eastern European uh, countries within within the EU. And that's something that, by the way, comes up quite regularly. And on this trip, it it did come up. And he was commended by uh, his hosts for actually breaking that kind of drought let's call it. Now, it was very interesting because on Wednesday, Macron said, you know, it takes two to tango. Let's see if this dialogue is going to actually produce something real. And let's see, you know, basically if the Russians are willing to to make progress on that. And that's that's an interesting thing to say for him. I mean, it is commendable for him to go there and to express this sentiment. But he has this tendency to want to go from zero to 100. And then he calls them brothers and says, you know, we need to lock arms here and screw the U.S. and we're going to have our, you know, strategic autonomy and nobody is buying it. Well, and, you know, you're you're right to bring that up because... Thank you. Uh, so in Lithuania, he said that European countries should uh, decrease their dependence on U.S. weapons systems. And what happened was that some of the Lithuanian officials said, well, you know what? The European Defense Fund doesn't have much money. The European defense in general sort of is not really where it should be. And it's not in a in shape to take over for the U.S. sort of supply. Uh, and as our listeners know, because they listen to us every week, you know, the last European budget that was agreed on, including by France, um, had a very small portion of, of budget for defense. Uh, and, you know, the French say, well, it's up from nothing. Well, I mean, that's the whole problem, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the thing is also that it was substantially less, about 40% less than what the European Commission proposed it should be. And that in itself was not a huge amount in terms of, you know, the kind of money that's normally put into defence, you know, research and spending. Anyway, I did want us to have like a mini version of the summit. And we've definitely had probably a more lively debate than they're actually going to have around the table. So um, that's good, at least. And let's, uh, Matt, just before uh, we let you go, give us a quick update on the state of the race to uh, succeed Angela Merkel. First of all, there's kind of two stages to that, right? First of all, somebody is going to become the new leader of the CDU, taking over from Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, and that person would then really be in pole position to be the next uh, German chancellor. You've been speaking to a couple of the candidates for the CDU leadership. So just um, bring us up to date on the state of the race and you know, tell us who you've been talking to. That's right. The, the race was put on hold effectively because of COVID. They were supposed to make this decision about who's going to lead the CDU back in April, and they had a convention set then, which they had to delay, and it's now going to happen at the beginning of December. Uh, there are three candidates, Armin Laschet, who is the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is Germany's largest state, the industrial heartland. He is Merkel's kind of preferred candidate, it has to be said. And then there are two figures who have clashed 
uh, with Merkel over the years quite a lot. One is Friedrich Merz. He's a little bit more conservative. He's a corporate lawyer. So uh, then the, the final candidate who's sort of seen as a dark horse candidate is Norbert Röttgen, who is the chairman of the Bundestag's Foreign Affairs Committee. And he is really kind of the the figure who is most liked abroad, I would say. And, you know, despite the fact that he's so well-liked abroad, he has a more difficult time, I think, in, in Germany within his, within his own party. So as you said, um, he's kind of the dark horse candidate to lead the CDU, a bit of a long shot, which, which also makes him an even longer shot to be chancellor, although, you know, you never know in politics. But even if he doesn't win, is it quite possible that he could still have quite a leading role to play in, in the next German government? I think so. I would be very surprised if he didn't get some kind of ministerial portfolio after this race. The interesting thing has been that because of all of these crises that we've seen over the past couple of months with Belarus and Navalny and the tensions with China, his profile has really risen in Germany. His sort of foreign policy skills and expertise have really been on display. And so I do, I do think that he will play a role, maybe as uh, something like defense minister, because if there's a coalition, the uh, foreign ministry usually goes to the junior partner. Mm. OK, so we'll hear that interview uh, shortly. We're going to talk Eastern Mediterranean next, and then we'll come back and hear that interview with Norbert Rutkin. Uh, but for now, Matt and Reem, thanks very much. Thank you. Now, let's dive into the Eastern Mediterranean, talk Greece, Cyprus and Turkey with two political journalists who know the region very well. First, hello to Nectaria Stamouli, our reporter in Athens. Hi, Nectaria. Hi. And hello also to our assistant news editor and former correspondent in Istanbul, Zia Baiza. Hi, Zia. Hello. So this is obviously a topic that's going to be discussed at the European Council at the summit Thursday and Friday of this week. It's risen up the agenda. Tension seems to have risen over a period of weeks and months. Now it seems like things have calmed down at least a little. Um, But let's just try and go through it chronologically and understand what happened. Uh, Look first from the Greek point of view. So Nectaria, what happened in recent months that caused alarm and consternation in Greece Uh, What did the Greek government get particularly upset about here? First of all, we all know that Greece and Turkey have long-standing rivalries over a big number of issues. Maritime borders, exploration talks, uh, uh, Cyprus, the divided island. And in 1996, they nearly went to war over a disputed island. But since then, things have come down. In recent months, what escalated things a lot was first of all last year when Turkey started drilling off Cyprus and then went on uh, and signed the maritime borders deal with uh, the recognized government of Libya. In this deal, uh, it claimed parts of Eastern Mediterranean that Greece and Cyprus consider that they're their own uh, exclusive economic zone, basically. It was considered a sea grab. So then Athens went on in July and signed the borders deal with Egypt, a deal that uh, infuriated Turkey. And basically, things escalated very quickly after that. It sent a drill ship, a seismic vessel, sorry, close to Greek islands, and it started exploration uh, research. And this thing was considered by Greece basically as wet going too far and asked EU to step in and basically take sanctions or discuss sanctions against uh, Turkey. 
Okay, so that's a nice uh, potted recent history from Nectaria. What's the Turkish take on this, Zia? I mean, how does the Turkish government justify these actions, which Greece obviously sees as highly provocative? So Turkey has long thought that its maritime territory, essentially, should be bigger than what it currently or legally, I suppose, is. And that's because, so Turkey and Greece both have long coastlines, right? But Greece has many, many islands, and some of them are very close, like almost next to the Turkish coast, which gives Greece a maritime boundary that cuts very close to Turkey, even if it's just because of a very, very tiny island. And Turkey thinks that's unfair, so there's that. And then there's also Cyprus, which obviously has been divided since 1974, and the Turkish, sorry, the um, northern half of the island was invaded by Turkey and is to date recognized only by Turkey as an independent state. And Turkey believes that the Turkish Cypriots should have rights to what is around the island. So in that case, gas reserves. And it also thinks that Turkey itself should have rights to whatever natural gas reserves might be in the eastern Mediterranean, where it thinks it has claims essentially to territory. Right, so as we've heard, a lot of this is obviously about the potential rights to very significant reserves, I think particularly of natural gas, and things came to a head, and certainly Nectaria, from what you uh, told us from Greece, it felt like there was a lot of tension around, even the possibility that perhaps by accident the two sides could end up in some kind of hot military conflict but it does seem like things have calmed down a bit lately. So give us a sense of, you know, after things reaching their peak with that seismic vessel doing its exploration in this disputed area, what happened since then to kind of calm things down? Indeed, tensions were very high in Greece. In fact, if you were watching Greek TV or reading Greek papers, it was like the country was preparing to start a war. It was kind of scary. But then uh, there was a strong mediation by uh, international powers, especially by Germany. So the two countries announced earlier this month that they were willing to start exploratory talks. But Zia, how does it look from the Turkish point of view? Does it seem like they're committed to a de-escalation at this stage? It probably depends who you ask. Obviously, Turkey has withdrawn the ship that sort of sparked that flare-up from Greek waters. It says that was only for maintenance reasons, but I probably think that's only partially true. It was scheduled, apparently, to return to port, but it certainly also aided any attempt at mediation And we now know that the Turks said they're ready to talk, to sit down with Greece. So I I guess we'll see. Now we're recording just before the European Council summit. Some of our listeners will hear this podcast afterwards. Nectaria, what are the Greeks in particular looking for in terms of symbolism or concrete measures when Turkey is discussed at the summit, when the Greek Prime Minister sits down to talk about this with his EU counterparts? Even most important, I think, is what the Cypriots are looking for from this summit. The Greeks, uh, it seems that uh, the situation has de-escalated in Eastern Mediterranean and uh, the Turks have uh, taken their vessel back. But Turkey is still off Cyprus and it is conducting not only research, but actually drilling. So despite the fact that Greece would like, uh, it would still want the EU 
to prepare a list of sanctions that could be used potentially in case the Turkish vessels are back. Cyprus wants uh, more sanctions against Turkey because of the provocations that it sees of uh, the island. So Greece has a very delicate act at the summit because at the one hand they don't have to let Cypriots go, they have to stand by them. And at the same time, they have to be, you know, as harsh as they should so that the talks will indeed start after the summit. Right. It does seem like a delicate act. And we know we've got a sense of how strongly Cyprus feels about this by the fact they've held up the imposition of EU sanctions on Belarusian officials. You know, a completely separate arena, if you like, completely separate issue. But the Cypriots have basically said... We're not going to go ahead with these sanctions until you help us out with sanctions on Turkey, which we think are important. And we believe, actually, we already have an agreement in principle to implement them. So it's a sign, I think, just of how these foreign policy issues that can seem quite distinct can actually end up being related. And Zia, uh, when Turkey's discussed around the summit table, are there any countries that Turkey thinks it can rely on to be more sympathetic, at least, towards Ankara? Yeah, so we have this really interesting French-German split, right? So Germany has uh, had a very different approach to this. While France was very vocal in its support for Greece, Germany was more like, let's, you know, let's talk and try to be more of a neutral broker, which I think Turkey appreciates. To be pragmatic, I guess, that also too. because Germany has considerable interest there and uh, wants to have a, a stable relationship with Turkey, right? Precisely, yes. Okay, and is there anything either of you would like to mention that you think we haven't covered so far? I think that ultimately, I mean, Greece and Cyprus are obviously taking us very personally for good reason. And a big part of this is energy, but it's not really about either. It's about Turkey's role in the region and how it's responding to what it sees around it. So Turkey obviously sees itself as a regional power, even more so now that there is a sort of power vacuum with the US having retreated somewhat from that region and the global stage. And Turkey has long suffered from a sort of siege mentality, let's say, that's both domestic, um, in its domestic security situation, it thinks that there are various forces conspiring against the state, uh, sometimes not entirely unreasonably, and abroad as well. And that's driven in part by uh, a realistic assessment of the situation. Turkey has become incredibly isolated over recent years, and the gas dispute in particular has led to a host of countries, uh, Greece, Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, France, you know, sort of grouping together against Turkey. So Turkey very much feels that its interests are threatened. Yeah, we can certainly see, I think, from the sort of Brussels point of view, an increasing acknowledgement and in some cases alarm about the leverage that Turkey has kind of around the European Union, right? So I think when you're an EU diplomat in Brussels or, or other places, you suddenly sort of look around, uh, particularly if you look at the southeastern flank of the European Union, and you see that Turkey has a lot of influence there. And so I think the question the leaders are obviously going to have to discuss is, how do we deal with that? Um, any final thoughts from you, Nectaria? 
Yeah, I mean, both countries say, Greece and Turkey, they say that they want to talk. But the thing is, I don't know how serious and how far they're willing to, to take these discussions, because that would uh, mean compromise for both leaders. And they're both preparing for a, a very tough winter ahead of them. The Turkish economy is in big trouble. The Greek economy just uh, came out of a 10-year-long recession, but is already hit hard by the pandemic. So this is a very, very sensitive issue and it's very difficult for both leaders to make any compromises on these issues. So I'm not sure about how willing they are to actually find a solution in the end. Okay, well, I think we'll have to leave it there. But Zia, Nectaria, thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now let's get to Matt's interview with Norbert Rutkin, one of three candidates to take over the leadership of Germany's Christian Democrats. They talked about a bunch of foreign policy issues, including Russia and China, and how he would handle them if he becomes Germany's next chancellor. But first, Matt asked him about migration. We have now several hundred people in uh, Lesbos, in, in Moria. There's a lot of debate in Berlin about what to do. It seems that uh, Germany is prepared to take a fairly large number of, of these refugees some people say that we're back at, in 2015, where, where, where Germany is going to again have to, to bear the, the brunt of the refugee crisis. What do you think should be done in, in Moria now? I think there is in no way, uh, are we back to 2015, we have a completely different situation today. And what I consider to be absolutely essential is that we remain able to differentiate we are facing uh, in Lesbos a single humanitarian crisis. People are living under inhumane circumstances. So it's, it's a question of our human humanitarian responsibility to help. Uh, and I think we should be able to do that because we can do that. It's also, also a matter of how we understand ourselves, and I think we can do that, and we should not be led by fear regarding the situation of uh, that 2015 shall not be repeated. The other thing is that, of course, the refugee situation uh, deserves and re requires a political answer, uh, and this cannot be a German answer, a national answer, but it has to be a European answer. And however, we have to be honest, there will not be a European answer on the basis of the agreement of 27 European nation states. So we have to act as countries who are willing and determined uh, to act in a responsible, effective way in order to resolve this situation. But we, we, we've heard similar things over the past several years, actually since 2015. There have been calls for a European solution, that that's the only way forward, uh, and it, it hasn't come to be. Why do you think it's realistic now that we could see some sort of European solution to this problem? Because now we have a, a climax of a catastrophe. And you're absolutely right, this is also uh, the result of a European failure. We have not acted so far although we know how uh, desperate and deplorable the situation has been even before the burning down of the camp. So this is also a lack of action. We should have acted before in order to avoid such a catastrophe to happen. You, you are obviously running for the leadership of the CDU. Um, assuming that you win, how do you think 
Germany's foreign policy in general, which has been your focus for many years. How, how do you see German foreign policy changing? How, 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 what would you want to change if you were to? Uh, uh, perhaps it's not so much about that we uh, have to change, but that we have to adapt to a changing reality. I think we are definitely living in a, in a new age. And the, the 20s, this decade, will be crucial for who and what we will be at the end of this decade. So we have to pick a responsibility in order to serve our own interests. Uh, we are in the post-Cold War era with the re-emergence of great power politics. Uh, we will have to redefine our relationship with the United States, irrespective of the outcome of, of the presidential elections there. We will have to redefine our European, which is required, a European hopefully a transatlantic stance vis-à-vis -vis the big authoritarian states like China and Russia. So it will be about a new level and dimension of international responsibility. Germany, as part of the European community and the transatlantic community, will have to assume in order to serve our own European and national interests. And I think this is inevitable, but we have, of course, yet to explain this to our societies because they have been used to, the different, to a different geopolitical environment and that change is inevitable and necessary and has to be shaped by us in order to sustain our way of life. This is the essential message I think we have to deliver. But do you think that if you look back over the past, say, uh, 15 years or so, that German foreign policy has actually failed because now we're at a stage where you see very difficult relations with Turkey, with Russia, with the United States, with China. The UK is leaving the European Union. And now, as you say, you're, you're, you're sort of looking for a, a way forward. But what went wrong over the past uh, 15, 20 years? I think it's not very helpful to look back to the last 15 or 20 years. In my view, the disruption happened in uh, spring 2014 uh, with the fundamental change in the foreign policy of Russia, which uh, became aggressive, expansive, the annexation of Crimea. Then we, since then, we are witnessing the unraveling of international order. And, of course, in the first years, we... We had to understand what is happening. I think now we know more or less what is going on. And now we have to enter the period uh, where we really given a, a clear, comprehensive, energetic answer uh, from the standpoint of a country which is part of the West. I think we have to redefine what is the West in these geopolitical circumstances. And Germany should and must be a part of that. I just wanted to pick out two of the, the countries that you mentioned, or two of the, the, the themes there, Russia and China. You've come out against uh, Nord Stream 2 after the Navalny uh, poisoning, saying you know, that that would be a mistake to stay in the deal. More generally, what, what do you think German foreign policy towards China and Russia should look like in the next years? I think both countries are very, very different cases for, for Germany. We need... China and China needs us in order to combat climate change, for example. We are doing businesses with China and we want to have fair uh, business and trade relations with China on the basis of reciprocity. And at the same time, we see uh, that China is applying now under Xi Jinping 
an assertive, uh, partially expansive foreign policy, which has a, only a selective relationship to international law. So, yes, you have to deal with this multifaceted China, which it is. You can't do it any longer on a national European basis. We can't any longer only conceive or mainly conceive China as a big market. It's much more and we have to adequately respond. 5G, for example, is a topic in point in this context where we can and should develop our digital sovereignty as Europeans, but also in relationship to China. Russia is a different case. Russia is dependent on the sale of its energy resources. It has changed the fundamental course of its foreign policy, extremely suppressive uh, domestically uh, and expansive and using illegally inter uh, military force beyond its borders in Syria and in Ukraine. And I think Russia is planning to establish a zone of influence by different means, cyber attacks, hybrid measures, and of course, military force from Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, and now Belarus. And this will more or less lead to a new division within Europe, which we can't tolerate. And we have to give a a comprehensive, strong answer to the violation of the European principles. Do you think that Germany has been too soft on Putin? We will have to see how it's uh, going to develop in the weeks ahead. I think the poisoning of Navalny on the one side is another case in committing these uh, state crimes and it shows a pattern of Russian behavior. And I think it is, has become clear that this requires a strong and clear answer. And I'm still hopeful that for the first time, or not, I think for the second time after the annexation of Crimea, Europeans will give a strong, clear answer of non-tolerance. And quickly on, on, on Brexit, what do you think the, the European strategy should be um, if there isn't a deal which is increasingly looking like? What, what does it mean for Germany if, if this whole thing implodes as it's looking now? If this whole thing implodes, it will be um, harmful for everybody. And our adversaries around the world, we talked about uh, two of them, will enjoy and rejoice that uh, there is another split within countries which share the same values. So we are at the crossroads to inflict harm on us, not only economically but also politically, or to come back to a rational perspective and, and come together and reach at least a minimum agreement, which is still possible. I still have the hope that the last announcement of Britain to be eventually ready to violate international treaties like the Brexit agreement is only used as a tactical instrument. If at the end of the day Britain were to violate not only an international uh, agreement, but its reputation as a torchbearer of the rule of law. It would be an additional damage for Britain, but also would demonstrate how harmful this entire process has been for us. You have a uh, quite a long history with Angela Merkel. She's going to step down as a chancellor next year, about a year from now. 
What, what do you think her legacy as German Chancellor will be? She has sustained and managed more crises than all of her predecessors have. She has been calm, rational in all these challenging crises. And I think this has given a, a pattern how German chancellors and politicians should behave. What do you think she's done wrong? Uh, I have not yet thought about it. Thank you. Thanks to Matt for bringing us that conversation with Norbert Rutgen. It's part of a whole After Merkel series we've started on Politico.eu, where you can already read stories on two of the leading candidates to be the next German Chancellor and transcripts of Matt's interviews with them. And there'll be much, much more to come in the months ahead. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We say it every week, but please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have just a few seconds right now, please rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a short review. It helps other people to find the podcast. We've really appreciated the feedback we've been receiving lately, and this episode reflected some of our listeners' recent requests. So thank you. You can always reach us at podcast at politico.eu. Next Tuesday, you'll get another episode in your feed of our special US election series, Campaign Confidential. And we'll be back with another EU Confidential, as usual, next Thursday. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.